calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book One The Voyage South Chapter Nine In Which Astrea Leaves Teenmouth Astrea's next morning began like the first. Horses' hooves knocked on the wall by his head, and moments later Jeb's boot kicked his door open. Chores! Now! Astrea yawned, stretched, pulled on his clothes, and walked around to the horse's end of the barn. They greeted him with huffs of air blown out of their nostrils, and more knocking of hooves. One by one they pulled him in an enthusiastic clopping surge to their hitching post in the yard, where he fed, watered, and groomed them, before returning to muck out their stalls. He was barrowing a stinking pile of manure and straw to the midden when Jeb returned. Wash up. Breakfast. Kitchen. Now. As Astrea undid his boots and climbed the steps to the kitchen, he thought about the conversations he had overheard the night before, and wondered if there might be a way out of servitude to Jeb. The men had been in agreement when he last heard them, but Jeb, who had not been happy with the decision, had conferred alone with the mayor, and there was no way of telling whose opinion had prevailed. Astrea reasoned that being invited into the kitchen augured well, but he was not sure, and he still felt dominated by the man who believed that rescuing Astrea conferred the right to own him, body and spirit. The emotional up and down of the last few days had left him irresolute, balanced between hope and fear, as circumstances threw him from betrayal to rescue to slavery, and perhaps now to an uncertain chance of escape. He stopped in the doorway, took a deep breath, and just in time stopped his right hand from feeling his bracelet through his sleeve. He looked at Jeb, who sat with his shoulders hunched, resting his forearms heavily on the table. Eva moved light-footed across the kitchen, her bare feet appearing and disappearing under her swaying blue dress. She put a pewter mug by her father's right hand and backed away quickly. Moments later, Judith was a more deliberate and slower echo of her daughter as she carried a plate of food and laid it in front of her husband. "'Sit, eat, listen,' said Jeb. Astrea did as he was told. He ate the porridge Judith spooned into his bowl, welcomed its warmth, but hardly tasted it. As he ate, he could feel Jeb's eyes on him, watching his every move. Eventually he laid down his spoon, took a deep breath, and deliberately returned Jeb's gaze. "'I'm to be robbed of your services for the good of Teenmouth. You're to go to the castle as our scholar.' Astrea was amazed both by the words and the change in Jeb's voice. He had gone from barking orders to a conspiratorial, almost wheedling tone. "'Don't thank me. I was again it. The mayor and the other elders decided that you're to go, cause none of our young men want to go, or could go, or their parents don't want them to go. And if we don't send someone, Teenmouth will not have another chance at either getting a healer or sending another scholar, so you're in luck, boy. Ah, uh, thank you. Astrea wondered why Jeb should sound as if he were persuading him to go, even though the farmer wanted his unpaid labor. Tonight the elders will give you their blessing and the gifts. You'll be our scholar. 
and even if you don't come back, you'll be considered for a healer. And, in time, there'll be other young lads from Teenmouth who'll go to the castle. Why don't you send Eva? asked Estrella. The question popped out of his mouth before he could consider that if Jeb agreed, he would continue to be Estrella's master. Don't you worry yourself about Eva. She's a good girl, but a bit headstrong. That's why most of the young fellows are all bespoken to other girls, or have no time for her. She'll soften in time. Muddy boots, she says. There's no shame in muddy boots for a farming man. My boots get muddy, and I take them off at the door, don't I, woman? Judith nodded. Of course, the lads she could fancy aren't swift like you, sailor boy. She'd wait for you. I can tell you that. No competition. Estrella frowned. Where was the jealous father who had told him never even to look at his daughter? Jeb scraped his chair back, walked to the door, and started to pull on the boots he'd left on the doorstep. His voice changed back to the tone he used to issue orders. Wife, I'll be to the elders now. I'll deal with Eva later. Now, sailor, even though you're going to be our scholar, you owe me another day's work on my fence before you come to the meeting hall at sundown. He strode away without waiting for an answer. Estrella and Judith listened to his footsteps receding down the path before they looked at each other. Estrella could not understand the contradictions in the man's behavior. He had just spoken as if he owned his wife, his daughter, and Estrella. But moments before he'd been sounding more like a conspirator. "'What's he up to?' Estrella asked. Judith shrugged. "'He's seen some advantage for himself, and none other. Don't take it for a change of heart.' "'What should I do, then?' "'Go to the castle. There's nothing keeping you here, or there. What about Eva, and what did he mean by dealing with her? He knows she took you a meal last night.' But she's her own self, Strea, and I'm proud of what she did, even if it causes her pain. And I'll tell her you cared for her, and wanted no part of a forced exchange of favors. I think she's wonderful, but Estrella searched for words that would not somehow be insulting. Judith nodded. You don't need your whole life's road walked for you, she said. No more does she. But the elders, don't think that way. No more do the learneds. So have a care about how you show yourself. She smiled unexpectedly, and for a moment Estrella thought of Alanna. It was not that Judith and Alanna were alike, save that each had told him in her own way that he had a right to live his own life. In that moment Estrella was transported in memory to the moment of leave-taking from his mother. The memory triggered a shower of questions. Would Roaring Jack be able to follow the sketches he had made? What would he say to Alanna? Would she believe that he was dead? Or would she somehow know, despite what she was told? Either way, there was nothing he could do. They were cut off, their lives separated. It seemed to him that distance and death were almost the same. The room swam for a moment, and Estrella sniffed. Village men did not cry, at least. He'd never seen one do so. "'There's nothing wrong with tears,' said Judith gently. "'Don't upset yourself trying to dry them from the inside. When they're finished, they'll stop on their own.' "'But!' Estrella choked. Then her arm was around his shoulders, and he was able to take control of himself again. For days he had been alone among strangers, from whom he had discovered that the people he thought of as friends had deserted him. Judith's understanding seemed to flow from her, and her arm was like a rescue from a slow, lonely drowning. "'You must get on with your own life, Strea,' said Judith. "'No compromises, no easy way out. Don't ask me how I know. I have feelings about what'll happen.' "'My mother has such feelings,' said Estrella, his voice firmer. "'She'll know I'm alive.' Against reason and the black thoughts only a moment past, he believed what he told her. She knows things before they happen, sometimes. 
Judith nodded and held him by his shoulders at arm's length and looked into his eyes. She stepped back as if suddenly embarrassed. I'd better go work on the fence, said Estrella, feeling his cheeks hot. I'll have your midday meal for you when you've made Sally ready. When Estrella had prepared the horse and picked up a parcel of food from Judith, he walked back up to the snake fence where he and the horse went to work together. The day, which had begun cloudless, warmed quickly, but puffy white clouds were forming, from time to time offering a few moments of shadow. Towards noon, when he stopped for his meal, he led Sally to the stream where they both drank, and he ate cold chicken and greens between thick slabs of fresh bread. In the afternoon more cloud shadows dappled the field, and a steady wind kept most of the flies away. The day before, Estrella had worked to numb himself against the thought that he had been both abandoned and enslaved. Now the task was a challenge, and at the end of this second day he looked back on what he had done with satisfaction. The snake fence wound its way almost to the western side of the field, dark in the late afternoon light. On his way back along the path, the horse plodding beside him, he felt a sense of achievement in what he had done that had nothing to do with Jeb. When he had returned to the farm, rubbed down Sally, and given both horses their supper, he took the cloth that had wrapped his midday meal to thank Judith in her kitchen. On the table was an armful of clothes topped by a pair of boots that looked almost new. She picked them up and gave them to him. "'You need to be seen as someone who does Teenmouth credit,' she said. Estrella thanked her as best he could, but she would not meet his eyes. She turned her back while he pulled on brown trousers that almost brushed the top of his feet in the manner of the farmers of Teenmouth. Then he sat on the doorstep to pull on new socks and surprisingly comfortable boots. When he stood, she gestured for him to pull off the shapeless garment Jeb had given him and handed him a shirt. It was made of much finer fabric than the sack-like one he had just removed. Pale yellow and tapered towards his waist, it fastened in front in a line of bone buttons, and it was full in the sleeves. When he admired the stitching, she smiled at the compliment and helped him put on a green sleeveless vest and fastened its buttons so that the shirt showed almost to his waist. She stepped back and looked him up and down. You'll turn all the girls' heads. He smiled but shook his head at the flattery. Thank you, Judith. I only made a few adjustments to the clothes sent by the elders. She waved away his thanks without meeting his eyes and pointed his way. Follow the road and keep to your left. You'll see the hall. It's red, and by the time you're there, there'll be lights inside. Estrella followed the cart track, overarching trees darkening his way. When he looked through the gaps between the tree trunks on his left, he saw the sunset gilding hayfields to the west. The trees on his right blended into a forest. Following Judith's directions, he turned onto a wider track of hard-pounded red earth between hedgerows that blocked the view of anything but the next bend. As he walked towards what he presumed would be some kind of community gathering, Estrella remembered how the village celebrated the turn of the seasons and the bounty of the sea, and he wished he were going back instead of onward to a task he had not chosen. Wondering how he might untangle the next twist in his fate, he slowed to a little more than a shuffle. There was a rustling in the hedgerow. He opened his eyes to see Eva step out of the bushes. She stood in the middle of the road, her head on one side, looking up at him. Estrella looked back. He noticed that her eyes were red. She had a smudge of dirt on her cheek, and hair had been teased out of her braids by twigs. They stood a couple of paces apart, each made awkward by the questions they wanted to ask. "'Strea, are you going to the castle?' she asked. Estrella nodded. "'I spoke to your mother,' said Estrella. "'She said it would be best if I left.' "'She said that?' "'She said we each had our own roads to walk.' Eva nodded. At first she had stood as if poised to run, but now she relaxed, stood with her weight on one leg, 
and tossed her head, making her pigtails flip back and forth. Her lips, which had been compressed into a thin line, curled into a smile. "'See you at the celebration,' she said. "'I'll show you how we dance.' She brushed past him, and when he turned, waved her fingers as she ran off down the track towards her home. Estrella's return wave came too late. Bewildered by her sudden change of mood, he stared after her in the fading light, catching a moment when her dress brushed a tuft of grass as it swayed jauntily from side to side. He stood transfixed by the curve and sway of her until she disappeared around a bend. None of the girls in the village had been as fascinating. None had made his mind slow and his mouth go slack. A dog barked further along the track as if summoning him to what he had to do. Estrella shook his head to clear it and continued along his way. Soon the rough hedgerows around the fields turned to trimmed cedar hedges with occasional gaps, through which he could see houses framed by big oaks and maples. The first buildings Estrella passed were made of logs, like Jeb's cottage. Then, as the road lost its centre stripe of grass, he passed houses clad in sawn planks, crisp and sharp at the corners, some of them rearing up to a second story. The sun was now set, but the western sky still glowed, allowing him to admire doors and windows painted in vivid greens, blues, and yellows, standing out against contrasting tones on walls. In the front yard of one of these, three small girls let their skipping rope fall and watched him go past with their mouths open. An adult's voice called them into the house, but they did not move. Once he had passed, Estrella heard a spate of chatter from all three, not one word of which could he understand. When he reached the crossroads, Estrella saw the meeting hall. Judith had told him that it was red, but nothing in her words prepared him for the way the building glowed in the evening light, its walls surmounted by a bell spire, whose shadows fell aslant the square where the three roads met. He stopped walking without deciding to do so, and stood, wishing there were some way to capture what he saw on paper. Slowly he became aware that he was no longer alone. Men, women, and children were making their way to the meeting hall from all sides of the open square in front of the glowing hall. The men were in sober black trousers and jackets over white shirts, and the women wore smocked blouses and full ankle-length skirts that were bright in the last rays of the sun. Estrella thought to wait until they were all ahead of him, but even though he had stopped walking, he was already committed to crossing the open space in front of the meeting hall, and there seemed no way of turning back. Acutely conscious of being watched by many people he did not know, he walked up the steps to the white doors of the hall, which rattled open in front of him. Astrea froze. Inside it was dark after the sunlit evening. "'You're late,' said the high voice in the shadows. "'Come on in, young fellow.' Suppressing the desire to turn and run, Astrea stepped into the darkness. He felt his heartbeat throbbing in his throat. As his eyes adjusted to the dim light, he saw three men sitting on a dais at the other end of the hall, silhouetted against a tall window. Jeb moved out of the shadows to his left and stood beside Estrella. "'Go forward, now,' he whispered. With the farmer an uncomfortable presence at his left shoulder, Estrella paced down the centre of the hall between rows of benches. He felt the muscles of his neck and shoulders tighten, and his bracelet tingled. One of the figures ahead of him raised a beckoning hand. Out of the shadow that was his face came the squeaky voice of a petulant old man. "'Get on with it, boy!' Estrella looked from one face to the other, wondering what to say or do. As he came closer and looked up at them, part of his mind noticed that they were all beardless. He saw fleshy wattles shaking under the chin of the oldest, whose head trembled above a thin, black-clad frame. To his left sat a shapeless body topped by a fat, bald-headed face, poised on a staircase of double chins, leading down to a well-filled black waistcoat. In the third chair, a tall, lean man in a white, puffy-sleeved shirt smiled down at Estrella. 
Jeb whispered behind Estrella's shoulder, That's the mayor. Beside him's our parson. The tall one's Councillor Daniel. Jeb pushed Estrella with a hand on his shoulder towards the three men. The young fellow's a newcomer and does not know our customs, but he's civil and he can read and write, said Jeb. I brought you proof of what he had written. Is this the truth? demanded Daniel in a deep voice that Estrella remembered from the night before. Or is it only that you can make out a few words and write your name? I can read and write plain words, sir, said Estrella, but there is much that I don't know. Well answered, said the fat man. Jebediah, you've turned this meeting from a wake into the celebration it should be. He nodded several times, his chins wobbling. The Ancient One rose out of his chair with shaky care. He stood, swayed slightly, arranged his shin-length coat around him with thin fingers, and began gabbling a string of memorized words in a nasal drone punctuated with occasional gasps. "'Will you now go to the place of learning?' <gasps> and devote your days to study for the good of all. <sighs> Say yes, whispered Jeb. Yes, said Estrella. Before he could say more, the wheezing voice continued. Run by my power as spiritual leader and temporal guide of Teen Mouth. <sighs> I call you scholar, and I wish you well. <sighs> now take your scholar's letter. <sighs> Where is the wretched thing? "'Have you filled in his name, Counselor?' The Counselor named Daniel stood in a single fluid motion and leant forward to offer Estrella a roll of parchment. Looking along the arm extended towards him, Estrella saw amused eyes above a quick, lean-faced smile. The Mayor, who had been slowly levering himself upwards on his elbows with the awkwardness of the very fat, waddled down the three steps one leg at a time like a little child. When they reached the floor, all three held out their hands towards Estrella. Take their hands, Jeb prompted. A fleshy, moist palm pressed Estrella's hand. Then dry, bony fingers squeezed him briefly. Finally, Daniel's rough, strong hand enfolded his hand almost to the wrist. He looked into a face lined by laughter, as well as age and weather. "'Good luck, young man,' said Daniel. "'You're saving us a heap of trouble, and we're grateful. Take these.' He held out what looked like a folded green blanket and a leather drawstring bag equipped with shoulder straps. Estrella accepted the armful, and then struggled to free a hand to take a fist-sized cloth bag that Daniel handed him. He started to offer thanks, but before he could speak he had to step out of the way as the old man teetered towards Jeb. "'You've done well, Jebediah. <sighs> Join us for the festivities. <sighs> Walk with us.' The four men walked around Estrella, passing him two on each side. He turned and stood with the gifts in his hands, looking at their backs, as they moved slowly towards the doorway, where the last light streamed in onto the white scrubbed wood of the floor. Estrella followed them, wondering as he did so whether he should or not. "'Here's our scholar,' shouted Daniel. He turned, took Estrella by the shoulder, and pushed him in front of the four of them, so that he stood on the steps of the hall, looking out at the open space below. Indistinct in the evening shadows, the people of Teenmouth looked up in silence. Estrella stared back at the crowd, not knowing what else to do. "'Let us find somewhere to sit.' And soon, <sighs> wheezed the old man. The elders went back into the meeting hall, and the crowd surged up the steps behind them. Estrella stepped inside the door to let them pass, feeling their glances, some curious, some smiling. One or two offered him a hand-clasp that nearly caused him to drop his new possessions. A tall, well-muscled young man of about Estrella's age stepped out of the flow of people and looked at him solemnly out of eyes so dark that they seemed to have no pupil at their centre. "'I wish you joy of it, scholar,' he said, glancing at the bundle under Estrella's left arm, and disappeared into the crowd in the meeting-hall. 
Estrella did not know whether he had been congratulated or insulted. He was acutely conscious of being the only stranger among people who all knew each other and who were meeting and greeting with an enthusiasm he could not share. As a few stragglers pushed hurriedly inside, he stood alone just inside the doorway. Lamps were lit, a fiddle creaked and squeaked its way into tune, and benches were scraped and bumped out of the way to make room for dancing. An aproned woman of huge girth carried a tray of food to a table near the door, and behind her came a man with his hands full of mugs, closely followed by two lads rolling a sizable barrel. Couples held hands, waiting for the dance, as a second fiddle joined the first in the squeaky business of tuning up. "'Go on, silly, it's your party.' "'Eva,' said Estrella. He turned towards her expectantly, and then stopped to stare. She wore a white-trimmed green dress that clung tight on her hips and then flared out past her knees. Her hair fell loose to her shoulders in brown ringlets, held back by a strip of green ribbon tied on the top of her head. Her shoulders were bare, above sleeves that ended near her elbows. Below a line of red and blue cross-stitching, her blouse swelled attractively. Estrella noticed that the material began a very long way below her chin, and then blushed as he became aware that he had been staring. Um, uh, that's a pretty shirt. Ah, uh, nice mm, stitching. Having now completely embarrassed himself, he was prepared for her to turn and leave him. Instead, she poised her head on a slight angle and smiled up at him provocatively. Here, give me your bag, cloak, and papers, she said and when he held them out to her she knelt to thrust them under a bench. "'That's a cloak?' he asked, trying to cover his embarrassment. He resolutely looked only into her eyes as she stood up in front of him. She swung her chin upward in something more than a nod, and laughed up into his face. "'Don't they have girls where you come from?' she teased. "'Yes,' said Estrella, "'but they dress like the women of Markham.' I know it from the way you look at me. The women of Markham? asked Estrella. Never mind. Come on. A new and even livelier Eva took Estrella's hand and led him into the middle of the hall, her toes flickering back and forth in a dance that was yet to begin. Lanterns hung from the rafters, the fiddles were ready, and the hall pulsed with excitement. Although he was once again at the centre of many strange people, Eva put her small hand in his, and he no longer felt alone. "'A toast to the scholar!' shouted a voice. "'A toast! A toast!' echoed others. Daniel waved a large hand over his head as he used his height to wade through the crowd and stand beside Estrella. "'Friends, you know how much I hate talking,' he began. A gust of laughter put the lie to his seeming seriousness. "'But I've got to tell you—' We're lucky to be here tonight, celebrating our scholar. He's not one of us, but I want you to make him at home. His name is Strea, and though he doesn't know us, he's going to do us all a great service. Teenmouth will not only send a scholar this year, but will be able to send scholars in the future. And I don't mind telling you that we came close to losing both opportunities. Teenmouth needs a healer, and now we can petition for one. No offence to our young men, mind you. If you're not a scholar, then you're not, and you shouldn't waste everyone's time trying. Now it certainly looks as if we've found our man, because Strayer here can already read and write. Maybe in a few years, should he study the healing arts and take a fancy for us, he'll come back. So I give you a toast to Strayer, our Teen Mouse Scholar. Mugs were raised, and voices mumbled Estrella's name. A drink was pressed into his hand, and Eva pushed his arm upwards to encourage him to drink. It was beer. Good beer, Estrella decided. It had a nutty flavour, like beer brewed for the village's autumn celebrations, when parents looked the other way while the older boys filled their mugs. Reply! Speech! 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 shouted several voices. Eva stood on tiptoe to speak into Estrella's ear. "'Tell them you're glad to be going, and that you thank them for all they've done.' Estrella spoke into the waiting silence. "'Um, 
you, you have given me a chance to learn, and I thank you. I owe much to your kindness, especially to Judas, Eva, and Jeb, who have looked after me so well. Again, I thank you. His reply seemed both inadequate and inaccurate to his own ears, but the shouts and clapping that followed were loud and enthusiastic. Wonderful, said Eva. They like that. The crowd parted in front of them, and Jeb pushed his way forward, his hand outstretched to Astraea. Eva took a step backwards. Astraea took Jeb's extended hand, very much aware that the gesture contradicted the events of the last two days. Then he saw that Jeb's eyes were focused past Astraea at the tall man behind him, and his expression was of deep dislike. He gave Astraea's hand one quick downward pull, far too strong to be friendly, turned to face the crowd, and deliberately usurped the role as spokesperson. "'Thank you, young fellow. On behalf of us all, Elder Daniel has spoken well, but there is something I would like to add.' Astraea saw, with some satisfaction, that Jeb's intervention had come too late. Attention had turned to food, drink, dancing, and merriment. Daniel waved a long arm at the musicians, the fiddlers started to play, and people began to clap and stamp in time. Suddenly Jeb was beside him, his hand closing on his arm, the fingers digging between his muscles. The farmer's voice was low in his ear. Listen. You just remember I saved and sheltered you, sailor boy. Tell your masters that, when they come back. I, Jebediah, took you in. Not the weak-minded elders I talked into it. Me. Make them know I'm the man to deal with here. Before Astraea could think of a reply, Jeb let go his arm and turned furiously on Eva, speaking in a harsh whisper. Daughter, do as I said. Get him out of here tonight. Astraea wanted to explain that he was no spy, but to do so was to admit that he and Eva had eavesdropped on the previous night's meeting. He hesitated, and the opportunity passed. Jeb's frowning face disappeared into the crowd. "'Take your place, young scholar,' shouted Daniel. Eva grabbed Astraea's hand and led him into the widening circle of people both young and old, all waiting for the dancing to begin. The music began in earnest, and Astraea caught the rhythm, as Eva led him into the dance, prompting him with little eager tugs and shoves. Astraea's feet recognized patterns like those he knew from the village, and after they had followed a line of couples for a turn around the hall, collecting others behind them, somehow he and Eva was one couple in a circle of eight people. When he glanced over his shoulder, he saw other circles. The steps of the dance were similar enough to those he had learned at the village, so that with a few pushes and pulls from Eva he was able to follow the figures. Partners changed in a chain of hands around, then there was swinging in pairs, elbows locked, then knees up prancing back to back, and then another chain of hands led to fresh partners with whom to repeat the figure. At first Astraea had to concentrate to keep his place but soon he was able to take his part confidently and even smile at the girls with whom he high-stepped and swung. Most looked up at him somewhat nervously, and then, as the spirit of the dance took hold, each brief encounter became more intense. As partners met and exchanged, he was surprised by the way that the young women tried to catch his fancy. In one of the twirls, a tall girl, with a freckled upturned nose and chestnut hair, pressed herself against him. "'I'm Becky!' she whispered, but a few quick steps later Eva's hand was on his shoulder and the touch of her hip against his as she reclaimed him. She pulled away for a moment, and Astraea saw Becky stumble, and then Eva's satisfied look. Astraea recoiled as much as was possible in the swift movements of the dance. Then Eva looked up at him, her lips parted, and his disapproval melted, as he felt accepted, even courted. The feeling went to his head more than the beer he had drunk. At the village dances he had always felt that he was at best tolerated, never really taken into the company of those his own age. Here he was not relegated to completing a set of pairs with the village grandmothers and their youngest granddaughters. Astraea felt an enthusiasm that went beyond the music and rhythm. Dance succeeded dance, some slower, some faster. 
The rhythm of the music and the colours of the girls' and women's swirling dresses held Astrea entranced. Occasionally dancers and musicians alike paused to catch their breath and raise their mugs of beer, but each time, before the exuberance could fade, the music began again, and Eva led him back into the dance once more. At last the music stopped and did not start again. Estrella found himself standing with one arm around Eva's waist, laughing with pleasure rather than at any one thing. Eva unwound herself from his arm and disappeared. He gradually became aware that the party was drawing to a close. Like a sailor reaching land after days at sea, Estrella's view of the world took a little while to steady and come back into everyday focus. He saw older women clearing up the remains of beer and food, noticed that the fat mare had fallen asleep with a beer mug balanced on his ample stomach, and watched as the fiddlers wrapped their precious instruments while the last of the beer was brought to them by a buxom girl. She glanced sideways towards Estrella as she passed him, and he recalled that her well-filled blouse had tilted towards him during the dancing. He was looking after her when Eva reappeared in the doorway with a basket in one hand. She had changed into her everyday clothes. The young man who had spoken to Estrella before the party began was at her side, whispering something he could not hear. Eva stamped her foot and almost shouted, "'Get away from me, Seth! I don't ever want to see you again!' Seth shrugged and slouched off into the night. Eva tossed her head as if to shake something out of her hair. Then she beckoned to Estrella, and they went out the door together where her mother waited with the gifts he had received from the counsellors. When they were out of the light that spilled from the open door, Eva hung the cloak over his shoulders, turning him into a black pillar in the gloom. "'The parchment is in here,' whispered Judith, handing him the leather pack. "'Start tonight. You can rest later on the way. Take the south road, and don't wait about. There are some who feel that it was all done too quickly, and would like to do it again, but different.' Do you understand? Estrella nodded because it was expected of him. There was no time to ask her what she meant. From the top of the pack she pulled out the little bag heavy with coins. She hung it around his neck by a leather thong and dropped it inside his shirt. This is the money for your fee at the castle. My man Jeb raised it from the people of Teenmouth with much complaint. Keep it close to you. But I don't know where... Estrella began. "'I'll show him, mother,' said Eva. "'Don't worry. Things will turn out well for you. Leave now.' Judith turned and disappeared into the night before Estrella could ask her any more questions. Almost as soon as she had gone, Eva took his arm. "'Come on, Estrella,' she said. "'We have to make up for the time we lost dancing. Except it wasn't lost, was it?' Her hand slid down his arm, and she entwined her fingers in his. Estrella was so surprised he couldn't think of an answer. He stood still and looked up, reading the heavens with a sailor's eye. A prickling of stars was overhead, and a bright planet shone through the branches of the trees around the square. He oriented himself with the North Star, and read the circling constellations' positions, estimating how much of the night remained before the dawn. The air was cool and fragrant with spring, welcome after the evening's dancing. "'Come on, Estrella,' said Eva, tugging at his hand. She led him across the square and down a lane between houses. Estrella felt the ground under his boots soften from hard-packed earth to close-cropped grass. Not long after, they passed a candlelit window in the last house. He shrugged the pack he had been given into a more comfortable position on one shoulder, bundled his cloak and threw it over the other. Beside him he heard Eva's dress rustling gently against her legs. He breathed deeply, smelling pine trees. He felt pleasantly cool after the hours of dancing and not the least sleepy. Now that his eyes had adjusted to the dim light, he could see their path ghosting ahead of them as it skirted a tongue of the forest. Eva suddenly pulled at his sleeve and led him into the woods. A few paces among rough-barked pines, and she stopped at the edge of a starlit clearing, put down the basket she had been carrying, and sank to her knees on a springy bed of pine needles. When he looked down at her, 
faint light gleamed on her hair. She shrugged a shoulder, and a bundle fell from under her cloak. She whispered something that was lost in the night wind among the pines. He leaned forward to catch her words. In the shadows of her face he could see stars, reflected in her eyes. Around them the world was grey and black, indistinct and mysterious. Then her hands clasped behind his neck, and she kissed him. Astraea felt a totally unexpected shiver run down his backbone. Her lips and tongue were teaching him to taste her mouth, but the whole event was so unexpected that he felt the need to stop, think, and analyze what was happening. At the same time as his mind seethed with questions, he felt energy building within him. He returned her kiss softly at first, then, experimentally and somewhat awkwardly, put his arms around her. Her hands slid from the back of his head down to his chest, pushing him gently but firmly away. She drew back her head. Food, she whispered, and knelt beside her basket. Astraea took several deep and calming breaths, his heart pounding. She spread out the cloak he had been given, and he kneeled beside her to let his hands do duty for his eyes in finding a soft spot between the roots of the pines. His fingers met Eva's in the darkness and lingered. She found his face with one hand and put a drumstick of chicken into his mouth with the other. He chewed, swallowed, and realized how hungry he was. They began to investigate the basket of food together, passing a flask of cider back and forth and growing increasingly sticky-fingered. Eva produced a cloth on which they wiped their lips and fingers, and then they were kissing again. They lay back on Astraea's new cloak, and she drew close to him, so that their bodies warmed each other. For a while kissing was enough. Then, gradually, it was not. On the one hand he felt the insistent urge for more than mere tenderness, and on the other he remembered the injunctions with which he had been brought up. Alanna had taught him that casual love-making was an affront to the ways of the village, where young people were supposed to choose each other with the keen knowledge that their pledge would be broken only by death. Moreover, in the village he had always been the stranger, and thus the one left out when hands were held and kisses exchanged. So lack of opportunity had guaranteed that he follow custom. Now, with Eva close against him, he was very aware that this was not the village. His hands somewhat awkwardly posed a question. Eva gasped as he touched her breasts, and her fingernails bit into his arm. They both tensed, and the moment was lost, along with Astraea's brief rejection of village customs. In that instant all of his earlier questions seethed in his mind, ending whatever might have been. Even though his face was close to Eva's, who was suddenly transfixed by the thought that he had no idea what she was thinking. He wondered why she had suddenly been so bold. He asked himself whether she was enjoying what was happening, or whether she was manipulating him. He remembered her father telling her to get rid of him, and he recalled being puzzled by the way she had so publicly disdained the young man called Seth. All these thoughts tumbled through his mind, making him unable to decide what to do next. They lay still for an interminable moment, then Eva suddenly sat up. In the darkness he heard her attempt to stifle a sob. "'I'm sorry,' he said, feeling his words to be both inadequate and not entirely true. She sobbed again. He stretched out his hand in the darkness and touched her shoulder. She flinched away. His gesture rebuffed. Astraea suddenly found himself talking, blurting out thoughts and feelings without a pause to wonder what he meant or how his words might be received. I don't know why. I don't know whether you're crying because we stopped or because we should have stopped earlier. I, I don't know whether I should get up and walk away into the night. We've only known each other a couple of days, and I don't know what you want. I'm supposed to go south to the castle, but I, I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know if I'll be back. She laughed harshly. There's so much you don't know, Strayer, she said, and yet you're so wise in some ways, so wise and so foolish. Astraea frowned in the darkness, trying to unravel the contradictions. Astraea, I brought you here to let anything and everything happen. 
I hoped you would go ahead, take your pleasure, not think about me. Then I could hate you for it and blame you if I had a baby. But you ruined my plans. You were gentle, and you thought about me. And, and, well, it didn't work. What didn't work? Estrella asked. And why? Don't you know? Oh, Estrella, don't be insulted. I like you, I really do. And it isn't your fault that you're a man, and that means you get picked to go to the castle, even though you're a complete stranger, and I'm from Tinmas, and could go, and want to go, and— Why don't you? Estrella asked. I know the folk around here don't think you should, but perhaps they'll accept you at the castle. That's the worst of it, said Eva with a sniff. The castle will sometimes take women. Mother told me so. But Tinmas people don't want to know that. Jeb won't even hear, Straya. Do you know what that's like, to talk to someone and they look at you as if they were deaf? Estrella thought of the confusion and hurt he had felt at Jan's treachery, and decided that he could guess Eva's feelings. It doesn't seem fair, he said. It isn't fair. And then along you come, and you get the money, the cloak, the party, and my own father made it happen. But I still don't understand why. Why he did it? To get ahead without working, same as always. But why? Why did I bring you here? I'm not sure now. I thought maybe if I couldn't do what I want, then I'd do what they want me to do, but so that they don't like it. You saw Jeb pushing me at you to get you out of Teen Mouth before they could change their minds. It almost made me hate you, Strayer. Maybe he wants me to go with you and then come back alone, with the money. But he doesn't want you to lie with me and leave him a pregnant daughter with no husband. Maybe he wants you to like me so that you'll come back to your people, and he will profit if they come to Teenmouth. Oh, I don't know. And I just don't care. I've decided that if I can't go, I'll do anything, anything that happens. And if I have a child... Then he won't beat me. That would be the beginning. I'll be the girl with a baby and no man. And then no one will have me. Estrella was unable to follow the contradictions and misunderstandings behind what she was saying, still less to calm her with an explanation. Eva, he began, I'm, I'm not. Uh, you mustn't, she continued as if he had not spoken. I'll go back. What else can I do? I can't live in hopes you'll return, because sure as fate there'll be no teen-mouthed boy interested in me after tonight. Not that I want their muddy boots around me. Come with me to the castle, said Estrella, impulsively leaping at a possible solution to all the confused facts and emotions that surrounded him. You know the way, and I don't. They must have room for an extra scholar or two. Besides, I want to know what I'm getting into before I join and I need someone I can ask questions. I need to make my own decisions based upon what I know, not on people who make them for me, people who I... He'd been going to say who I don't trust, but checked himself, lest she think he doubted her. Make my own decisions, echoed Eva slowly. That's what I want, too. Mother says to think for myself, but every time I do, it only makes matters worse. She sniffed, and Estrella wondered if she was going to cry again. When Mother said goodbye, she said, People do the unexpected. What did she mean, Estrella? Well, said Estrella, I guess she's right, because unexpected is what keeps happening to me. She knew! She knew! cried Eva in the darkness. Estrella, she guessed I'd come here, and she knew you'd be different. Oh, Estrella! It's going to be all right. She grabbed him around the neck and kissed him vigorously, if somewhat inaccurately. Estrella was too surprised by the sudden change in her mood to react before she'd let go and was again a part of the darkness around him. We have to leave, she said as she repacked the basket. Your mother told me to go tonight, said Estrella, and that means now. The hunter's belt set a little while ago, uh, while well, we weren't looking, and there's the moon beginning to rise. 
Eva chuckled. It was nice, Strea. So nice. I thought it might be, but I didn't know how much. For me, too, said Estrella, choosing to forget his misgivings. I never— You never had a girl? Estrella nodded in the dark. You seemed to know what to do, said Eva. So did you. I'm not ignorant, said Eva with dignity, just inexperienced. Me too, Estrella agreed. There was a long silence in which Estrella started to review all that had happened, until practical questions crowded out speculation. Will they follow? he asked. Not far. They'll walk to the edges of the fields and shout a bit, but they'll only make sure that there are no bodies lying around. Once they decide that I went with you willingly, they'll sit around and tut-tut about it. What about your mother and father? Eva was silent for a while, and then whispered very quietly, She'll understand and then much louder, and I don't care about what he thinks. Estrella fumbled for his pack in the darkness and folded up his cloak. Can you find the right road? he asked. We're close to it, said Eva. A few steps out of these pines, and we can be on our way. The first part is between fields. We'll not go very fast in the dark, but we can make a start. As they picked up their belongings, Eva's voice came to him in the darkness. I never kissed a man with a beard before. It's a bit prickly, but nice. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit estreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.